It is the most popular Bible, to be sure, among those Bibles that are selling today. The New International Version is selling more copies than any other Bible. The King James Version is second on the list, but the New King James and other Bibles are also behind the New International Version. Now, you might be wondering why I have such a nice leather-bound copy of the New International Version. I asked Steve if I could borrow his preaching Bible for this, and he said that I could. And so, uh, I want to correct that on tape, uh, in case anyone's listening by tape. I'm just kidding. Uh, this was a hand-me-down from a relative, and I just happened to get my hands on it in that way. But I have uh, taken this subject seriously because it is a serious subject and one that we do need to address with careful attention. And let me boil it down and get your attention right here at the very beginning and tell you why this even matters. Jesus Christ said, the words that He spoke will judge us in the last day, John chapter 12 and verse 48. If I do not have a relationship reliable copy of the words that Jesus Christ spoke, then my very soul is threatened. And I need to recognize that whether I'm talking about the NIV or any translation for that matter. My particular assignment is the New International Version, which came out in its New Testament form in the early 70s. The entire Bible was presented for viewing on October the 24th, 1978. And this Bible has been growing in popularity ever since. I have a copy of an article in my final from 1991 that the Commercial Appeal in Memphis put out in which they made this bold declaration in the headline. NIV tells what the KJV really means. That's what their claim was. Well, I'm not even so much interested in what the KJV means as I am in what the original languages mean, which I believe the KJV is an accurate representation of. And I want to make this proviso as well. There is nothing inherently wrong. There's nothing, hear me carefully, inherently wrong with a new translation of the Scriptures, provided that it is an accurate representation of what God actually said. If it is accurate, then just because it's new doesn't mean it's wrong. My friends, the test of a translation, the test of a version's credibility comes from investigating what it says compared to what the original languages said. Now you say, I, I don't know the original languages. I'm no Greek scholar myself. I did take six semesters of Greek during my education period and learned enough in that time to dabble some with it and to be able to know some things. And I know this, that translation can be a difficult task at times because when you're trying to go from one language into another language, that's not as easy as some would have you think because there aren't often exact equivalents in each language, although, as we're going to note, there are sufficient equivalents to get the point across without changing the message. And that's what needs to be understood. I do want to make this point, though. I also learned that there is absolutely no reason or justification whatsoever for some of the additions and subtractions that have been made by some of the so-called versions of the Bible, which are really at times perversions of what God actually said. Now, what do we mean by reliable? Is the NIV a reliable version of the Bible? When I say reliable, I mean trustworthy. I mean that a Bible that is reliable is one that faithfully and accurately reveals the mind of God without addition or subtraction. And when we look at the NIV, the question is, does the New International Version faithfully, accurately, and completely reveal the mind of God to the hearer in such a way, to the reader in such a way, that it would cause that individual to know precisely what God wants that individual to know? 
That's what it's all about. Now, when a Bible is nice and leather bound and things of that nature, we can hold it up and it looks so authoritative and you can take any book and make it look nice. The question is, what does it read like on the inside? What does it say on the inside? And is that what God wanted it to say? That's the question. First of all, I want to give you some foundational principles. Secondly, some faulty passages from the NIV. These foundational principles I regard as being very important for this message today. Would you start with me in your Bible in Deuteronomy chapter 4? And would you look with me at this very familiar text in verse 2? God has a matter that concerns Him, and that is how His Word is treated. In Deuteronomy 4, beginning at verse number 2, He told His people way back when, Ye shall not add unto the Word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it. Why? That you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Please observe that God told His people they were not to add to His Word, they were not to diminish from His Word, and that's going to be a very significant principle to remember in just a few moments. Turn, if you will, to Proverbs number 30, Proverbs chapter 30, and let's read verses 5 and 6 together. In Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6, we are told that every word of God is pure, and He is a shield unto them that put their trust in Him, and then this very emphatic declaration, add thou not unto his words why? Lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. And then who can forget the closing words of Holy Scripture, Revelation 22, 18 and 19, which I recognize talk primarily about the book of Revelation, but in principle would apply to the entirety of God's revelation. The Bible says in verses 18 and 19 of Revelation 22, For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. And so adding to and taking from God's holy and divine word is anathema to God and a matter that is not of little concern to him. It is of great concern. Now, some, according to Paul, handled the word of God deceitfully, 2 Corinthians 4. According to Peter, some have twisted the Scriptures to their own destruction. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and following. And every Scripture, all Scripture, is inspired of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished, complete unto every good work. As you and I think about the Bible and what it says, I think it's very important to begin with this foundational principle. What do we mean when we talk about the inspiration of the Bible. Believe it or not, that becomes a matter of great concern when you're choosing a translation because translations have philosophies themselves, which we're going to notice in a moment, about how they translate Scripture. Some say that the Bible is inspired only in this sense. God gave the man who was writing the Bible a thought and then permitted him to write it in his own words to communicate it without any supernatural guidance to ensure that it was done in a word-for-word fashion as God would have it be done. My friends, thought inspiration is 
so commonly believed today, but it is not what the Bible teaches. I want you to notice two or three places with me. In 2 Samuel chapter 23 and verse number 2, David makes a statement that shows you how plenary and verbal God's revelation was to those who spoke His Word and to those who wrote it. In 2 Samuel chapter 23 and verse 2, look at the statement with me. The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and His thought was in my mind. Is that what the Scripture says? The Bible says, His Word was in my tongue. What was on your tongue, David? The very words that God would have me to say. Now, God, of course, allowed and superintended over the process so that the personality of the speaker and writer was able to shine through, but God was still superintending over that process to ensure that each word used was the word that accurately reflected His mind. Take Jeremiah 1 and verse 9. Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 9. Here's a statement that's absolutely emphatic. God calls Jeremiah. He calls him to be a prophet. And among other things, what does it tell him? Jeremiah, of course, was not certain that he was qualified to be the kind of prophet that God wanted him to be. But God says, don't be afraid, verse 8, then verse 9, the Lord put forth His hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. What's that? God's words in man's mouth. God's words flowing through man's pen of inspiration. That's the scriptural view of inspiration. Turn to the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and notice that in verse number 9 we find a passage that when I was a 10-year-old boy and used to try my hand at preaching, I used to quote this verse and say, oh, how beautiful heaven must be. And though that's certainly true that heaven is going to be more beautiful than any eye has ever seen, I lay later learned as I grew older and studied that that's not what 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 9 is talking about. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 9 is declaring that man, unaided by supernatural revelation, can never know the mind of God. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard the things that God has prepared. Well, if, if we can't know it by our own senses physically, how can we ever come to know the mind of God? Verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 2, God has revealed them unto us by His Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man save the Spirit of man which is in him? Verse number 13 says, Which things also we speak not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost or Spirit teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual, and I believe the American Standard or one translation says with spiritual words. And so you think about it. The words are necessary to know the mind of God. Now, my wife and I have lived together now in marriage for almost 19 years. It's getting to be close to that anyway. And uh, I'm going to have to look it up. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know as well as I do... You know as well as I do that you get to know one another pretty well after you've lived together for so long. And you can almost at times know what the other person's thinking. But husbands, do we not admit freely there are times when we have no idea what our wives are thinking? Because if we did, we would have cut ourselves off at the pass and kept from doing something or saying something that we shouldn't have said. I can't know her mind unless she reveals it to me. 
And wives, please reveal your minds to us every now and then so that we can get off the hook. We don't know what you're thinking all the time. We're oaks and we need to be told. Now, when it comes to God's mind, I can sit around all day and look at nature and know that there is a God, but I don't know who He is. I need a revelation. And the Bible is that revelation from God. It tells me who God is, what He believes, what I should believe. And my friends, that being the case, I am totally dependent upon this Word to know God, not by still small voices in the night or anything else. And Brother Grizel in the next hour, I'm sure, is going to address some of this concept that's bleeding into more and more minds that we need something in addition to the written revelation of God. And I commend that presentation for you to listen to. But when it comes to our subject, why does this matter? Because, my friends, when you think about the philosophies of translation that some people have, there is a close connection between the theory of inspiration that people have. If people believe in thought inspiration, then they're going to believe what the NIV translators believe, and that is, our goal is to take the thought of the biblical writer and to convey it accurately. Now, you might say, well, that's a worthy goal. It, it would be a worthy goal, except that it involves them in interpretation, not translation. And my friends, I don't want someone to present me a Bible and say, here is God's Word, when in fact what it is, is a man or a group of men's interpretation of God's Word. I, those are called commentaries, and they can be very valuable. And there are times when we might even consult other versions of the Bible to see what individuals have thought about a certain passage. But that does not mean that we regard these kinds of translations as being the same as the word-for-word translations that we try to get. Now, there are three basic philosophies of translation. I want to hurry through these. Number one, literal. This is the goal of taking the original language and to try to find the most accurate word we have in our language, the receptor language, to convey the thought of the original language. And that is wonderful. It is sometimes more difficult with certain words than others, but it gives you the idea that you have the words, the very words that God wanted you to know. We do not, as some do, take a dynamic equivalent approach, which is what I've just basically said. Any word or phrase, they say, which translates the meaning or thought of the author is accurate. I'd like to know this. Have they talked to the author personally? Do they know exactly and precisely what he was thinking in a certain... Let me give you one example. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 9, the Bible says, Paul writes that it would be better to marry than to burn. Now, the NIV adds the words with passion. And I think the New King James also may add them, but they put them in italics to show they've been added by the translators. The NIV, if I'm not mistaken, does not put those in italics. And that being the case, you might say, well, what's the point? That could be what he's talking about here. I, I freely admit that. In fact, that's my studied conviction that he's talking about burning with passion. But when you look at the Greek text, the words with passion, are not there. Why supply words that are not necessarily required when you don't have them in the Greek text? That is a dangerous place to begin. And if you're going to do that, as sometimes even the King James has italicized words which shows they've been put there by the translators for the purpose of letting you know this is here to smooth out the meaning of this text. But at least I know that those words were not in the original and that is helpful to me. Whereas a lot of the newer Bibles don't even give you that benefit. They'll just put them there and let you act as if that's exactly what the Bible said and that it's in the original Greek. The paraphrase versions of the Bible are the worst, of course, and uh, those are 
loose rewordings of the original without a, any real concern for a literal equivalence. The NIV would be in the dynamic equivalent school. It says, we've taken the thoughts of the writers and we've interpreted them for you or translated them for you accurately. Now, the NIV will often take Greek verbs and turn them into nouns or adjectives. They'll take Greek nouns and turn them into verbs without any real justification or warrant. The NIV often inserts words into the text that are wholly unjustified. Let me give you an example of this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, Paul said. For some reason, unbeknownst to me, the NIV has translated Paul to say, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we try to persuade men. And my friends, why are those words added in that instance? There is no warrant for them. In the Greek text, they are not found. There is nothing in the text of the Greek which would authorize putting the words try in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. But I tell you what, we have an even worse problem with the NIV, and that is their decision, steadfast decision, to just arbitrarily leave words and phrases out altogether that are in the Greek text. Let me just give you an example. The word behold is found six times in the first two chapters of the book of Matthew. It's not found at all in the NIV translation of the first two chapters of the book of Matthew. The Greek word edu is used 230. 13 times in the New Testament. 107 of those times the NIV doesn't even put a, a word in the text of their translation to correspond with that word in the Greek text. So what you have essentially is this. God inspired these writers to write in, their, in the language they were familiar with. Paul didn't know English, didn't speak English, didn't write in English. He wrote in Greek. He wrote by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21. And the word moved there is the idea of being born along or carried along. It's the same word used in the book of Acts to describe that ship that was being carried along by the wind. And so here you have these individuals writing Scripture and writing down the very words that God would have them to use in the sense that their personalities wrote down what God revealed to them and when they finished every word they had written was what God wanted written. Now I want, I want you to see this. That means that God put the word behold in Matthew six times in the first part of that book. It wasn't divided into chapters or verses yet, but in the first, first part of the book of Matthew, God put it there six times. The NIV takes it out. God put it in. They took it out. I would like to ask, what presumptive arrogance does a man have to have to come along and say, God said that, but you know, I really don't think that word's all that necessary. I'm not suggesting to you that these men were deliberately sitting in a translation room saying, we don't care. We're going to take it out and show God who's boss. My friends, their negligence is no less dangerous, though. Their attitudes and motives, though they may have been proper doesn't mean that their work is proper. I want you to see another example of this in Exodus chapter 3 in verse number 12. If you go back to your a copy of God's Word in Exodus chapter 3 in verse number 12, here's what you have. This is God talking to Moses about going into Egypt and bringing forth the children of Israel out of Egypt. And God says, certainly I will be with thee. But you won't find the word certainly in the NIV. They've taken it out. Not because it's not in the original language, not because it's not in the manuscripts from which they were translating. They don't even say that this is a manuscript issue of 
the textual evidence whether a manuscript has the justification for putting this word here or not. It's there. Their basic philosophy is take out all the extraneous words that are in the Bible and just cut to the chase and get right to the point. I would ask this question. Extraneous to whom? If God put it in there, it's not extraneous. It's not unimportant. And think about the word Certainly, I will be with thee. Is that not a significant word here in this passage? I'm surely going to be with you. But you don't get that in the New International Version of the Bible. Also, they will take arbitrary and unnecessary and often unwarranted changes. Even Jack Lewis, who, whom I do not agree with on a number of things regarding translations, was candid enough to say that when he wrote them at the NIV Translation Committee headquarters about his evaluation of the NIV, in the initial stages of their coming out with it, he was one of the reviewers. He even admitted that they had oftentimes made changes just for the sake of change with no real justification or need. And there are times when they just come along and absolutely miss it and get it wrong. Let me give you an example. Matthew 18, 22. Jesus Christ was asked about how many times to forgive a brother. And Peter said, what, seven times? Thinking that would surely be enough. And Jesus said, no, not seven times, but Seventy times seven. The NIV says seventy-seven times. Seventy-seven times. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said seventy times seven. In Luke 12 and verse 25, Jesus asked, Which of you by taking thought can add a single cubit to your stature? Now that's very specific. He's talking about which of you by worrying about it can add any height to your physical stature. Instead of even translating those words to say, which of you by thinking about it can add height to your physical bodies, the NIV changes the analogy altogether. And here's what they have the Lord saying. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Now, even though that's true that it's in the same concept of not worrying, and they might say, well, it's the same basic gist and message. Don't worry. How does that change the basic message? It doesn't change the basic message, but I'd like to ask this question. Who gave them permission to change God's analogy and to make it one of their own? God said, which of you by taking thought can add a single cubit to your stature? I realize that we don't measure in cubits today, and it would be extreme on the other end to say that we couldn't translate that particular phrase to use a word that we're more familiar with as far as measurement. But my friends, to change it from an analogy of measuring things to measuring time is simply without warrant. Now let me quickly notice with you some faulty passages in the NIV. And obviously we will not have time to look at all of them today. Number one, in Psalm 51 and verse 5, they translate David to say the following. Surely, I'll let you get there and see it in your own Bible. Psalm Psalm 51.5, they translate David to say, Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. You've heard of the doctrine called Calvinism, which says that when you are born, you inherit the total depravity of your parents. Who inherited it from their parents? who inherited it from their parents all the way back to Adam and Eve. When they fell in the garden, from that point on, man who was born was totally depraved by inheritance. He inherited the total depravity of his parents. By the way, how many times have you heard people say that one false doctrine leads to the creation of another false doctrine? The very Catholic concept of the Immaculate Conception, which I used to think was a reference to the virgin birth of Christ. I later found out as I studied the Immaculate Conception of the mind 
mind of Catholics is this thought, that whereas most people, when they're born, inherit the sinful nature and depravity of their parents, when Mary was conceived, she was conceived immaculately, so that she did not inherit the depravity of her parents, so that she would thus be qualified to give birth to Jesus without passing this depravity on down to the little Lord Jesus. Now, that false doctrine would never have come about had it not been for the previous false doctrine that man is born a sinner and with a sinful nature and that he's born into some sort of state of total depravity. The Bible in Ezekiel 18.20 says, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. What sin does a baby commit by being born? Transgression of the law is what 1 John 3, 4 says sin is. Sin is a transgression of the law. What law of God does a baby transgress by being born into this world? What sin of omission or commission does a baby commit by being born into this world? Brother Hugo McCord some years ago in discussing Psalm 51, 5 said that this was a faulty translation in the NIV. And when David says in the King James Version, I was born in sin, that does not mean that he was a sinner himself. And I believe it was Brother McCord or someone like him that used the following illustration. One might say, I was born in a potato patch, but that doesn't mean that they were a potato when they were born. They were born into a, an environment, and that David was born into a sinful environment. Or, as Brother Curtis Cates has done some good work on it, I think more and more, the more I study it, might have some, some merit to it as far as the application of Psalm 51.5 is that you go back about ten generations and you find the uh, matter of, uh, uh, I'm trying to find the most delicate way to put it, Deuteronomy 23.1, look it up and you can study it, and the sins that would be committed if someone who violated that passage tried to enter into the place of worship and how many generations that would go on down until it would be uh, no longer held against that generation as far as the privileges and things of that nature. There's some uh, possibility that that's what's under consideration. One thing I know is this. I don't have to know precisely what something is to know what it's not. This is true in the uh, field of millennialism and other things too. In Revelation 20, there's a thousand year reign mentioned. What does that mean? Well, some years ago, there was a premillennialist discussing this with a preacher in the Lord's church. He said, well, what, is, uh, what does it mean that in Revelation 20 when it says thousand year reign? The preacher said, I, I'm not really sure that I know precisely what it means. Here's an idea I have. And the man bellowed back. He said, well, if you don't know what it means precisely, how do you know it doesn't mean what I say it means. And just at that moment in time, the gospel preacher said, uh, as he looked at a woman passing by on the street, he said, look, there goes your wife. The man looked out the window and said, what? He said, look, there's, there's, there goes your wife. And the man looked out that woman and said, that's not my wife. The gospel preacher said, well, who is she? He said, I don't know. He said, well, if you don't know who she is, how do you know she's not your wife? <laughs> My friends, that argument just won't work. I might not be able to interpret every phrase to someone's satisfaction, but I can look at something and know it's not something else. I'm not a mechanic by any stretch of the imagination, so you could show me a car park and ask me, what is this? And I would probably ask my wife to tell you because I just don't know. But I tell you this, it's not a basketball. It's not a football. It's some, what's Psalm 51.5 mean to the absolute satisfaction of everyone? I may not know precisely 
how to satisfy everyone's understanding. But I know this, because Ezekiel 18.20 says, The soul that sinneth, it shall die, because of 1 John 3.4, and because of Deuteronomy 24.16, which says, Every man shall be put to death for his own sin. It's not passed on down to the children. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, Ezekiel 18.20. I know based on that that Psalm 51.5 cannot mean what they say it means. Never, no, never. I want you to notice next that in the NIV, they take the word sarx in Greek, which is translated in the KJV, flesh, 148 times, and carnal, or form of the word carnal, three, uh, three times. 151 times the New Testament has the word sarx. 25 of those times the NIV, without any justification whatsoever, translates it sinful nature. This falls back to the Calvinistic view that when you are born, you are born with a sinful nature. Where did you get it? You got it from your parents. Where did they get it? They got it from their parents. And all the way back to Adam. And that you're born with a sinful nature. My friends, that is not an accurate translation of the word. And interestingly enough, they know that the word doesn't always mean that. Because in Romans 1.4, it talks about Jesus being born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Greek word is sarx. They don't translate that sinful nature. They know that that's not the right translation in that particular passage. It's not the right translation in any of the passages where they put it. Man does not have a sinful nature at birth. Man is born upright, and then he seeks out many inventions. Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 29. I want you to notice in Matthew 5, 17, they make the mistake of having Jesus say, Think not that I came to abolish the law. And then in Ephesians 2, 15 of the same Bible, they have Paul saying that Jesus came and abolished the law. Now, incidentally, the New American Standard Version, unfortunately, makes this same blunder. Matthew 5, 17, they have Jesus saying, don't think I came to abolish the law. They have Paul then saying in Ephesians 2, 15, that that's precisely what he did. Now, they have Jesus and Paul contradicting one another. Jesus was simply saying in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, I did not come to destroy the law and not see it come to its logical end. I came to fulfill it, to fill it full. And once he filled it full and completed its purpose, it was then taken out of the way. It was abolished. It's taken out of the way. Jesus Christ did abolish the law. He didn't come and destroy it before it completed its purpose, but he did take it out of the way. And that's what the Bible says. Now, Matthew 5.32, they translate Jesus to say, also in Matthew 19.9, that except for marital unfaithfulness, one cannot put away their mate and remarry. My friends, that is too elastic of a word to put in that particular fact. Because there have been times when people have not been faithful in a certain number of areas. Did you remember to mail that? No, I didn't. Well, that wasn't very good. You were unfaithful. I'm going to go and divorce. Well, that seems very extreme, but my friends, I promise you, you give people any loophole at all, you give them any elasticity at all, and they'll take marital unfaithfulness and make it mean whatever they want it to mean. That's true that sometimes when a wife or a husband cheats on their mate, we talk about them being unfaithful, but there are other forms of unfaithfulness. 
Jesus. My friends, when you use the specific word fornication, you take the elasticity out of marital unfaithfulness and confine it to what Jesus confined it to. It comes from the Greek word pornea, and that's very specific. And it's just unjustified to translate it as unfaithful, marital unfaithfulness. Let me watch this with you. Matthew 24 and verse 21, in the chapter that talks about the destruction of Jerusalem, there is a Greek word used there, philipsis, which refers to great tribulation. And the King James says, For then shall be great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world. To this time no nor ever shall be. And the NIV in Matthew 24, 21 translates it great distress. We'll find, technically, I suppose, tribulation and distress could be close enough words. But then, in the book of Revelation, which is the hotbed for premillennial thinking and those who would take the book of Revelation and twist it to mean what it never was intended to mean, they take the same Greek word which they translated great distress, and then in Revelation 7.14, they translate it to say, Be great tribulation. As if there were an actual time period in the future that is going to be known as the great tribulation. Very quickly, let me close out by noticing a couple of very serious ones. In Acts chapter 2, and that's not to say the others aren't serious at all, but when we start getting down to salvation issues as we're about to do, uh, that becomes even even more paramount. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 27, this one's not the one about the salvation issue, but it shows you the confusion of the NIV translators. In Acts 2.27, they have Jesus Christ not being left in the grave. Now, I will readily grant that the King James here has a word which in our modern vernacular would not convey to the best of our abilities what was being meant here and what was meant in 1611 when the King James was first translated. Jesus soul was not left in hell, the King James says. The NIV says his soul wasn't left in the grave. The Greek word used here is the Greek word Hades, and it is the realm of the unseen dead with that great gulf fixed between paradise and torment compartmentalized. Jesus went to paradise. He went to the Hadean world, the realm of the unseen dead. He was in the compartment of it known as paradise. He did not, my friends, he did not go to the flames of hell as a man I debated in 1987 claimed. He went to Hades. He went to the, to the paradise compartment of Hades. Now, to show you their inconsistency, the same Greek word which they translate grave in Acts 2.27. In Luke 16, the parable of the, or the story of the rich man and Lazarus, commonly called the parable, which I believe was an actual event, not a parable. But uh, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, they take the same word Hades there and don't translate it grave. They translate it hell. So there's inconsistency on their part. But let me close out. Time is such a vicious enemy during these lectureships for us speakers, all of us, and the director. So we'll finish up here. Romans 10, 9 and 10 uh, is blatant. My friends, this is so egregious that we need to understand how dangerous it is. Romans 10, 9 and 10. They have the Bible there saying that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Romans 10, 9 and 10, the Bible says with the mouth confession is made unto in the direction of salvation and believing unto in the direction of being made righteous. 
The NIV has you in a saved state at the moment that you hear the Word. Ephesians 1.13 is the last passage I'm going to have time to notice with you. They say in Ephesians 1.13 that Paul wrote to the Ephesians and told them this, You also were included in Christ when... How would you finish that statement? You were included in Christ when you as a penitent believer were baptized into Christ. That's not what they say. You were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. My friends, after I hear the word of truth, I am then led to faith and then hopefully repentance and confession and baptism for the remission of sins. The people that Paul wrote to in Ephesus would have included those in Acts 19 and they were not justified when they heard Paul in me. They, uh, someone says that's a synecdoche. It's a part for the whole. I grant that those occur in Scripture, but this one is awfully confusing and misleading. And the Bible teaches those people at Ephesus not only heard Paul, but they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. I want ask you a question. If you went to a pharmacist and most of the time, even 80% of the time, he gave out a prescription that was accurate and that would help you heal and keep your life going and flowing, but 20% of the time, just to throw out a random figure, he dispensed poison that killed all who took. Would you uh, go to that pharmacy? Would you advocate others going to him? Well, most of the time he's good. There are places in the NIV that are not the least bit objectionable, but my friends, the places that are objectionable are sufficiently objectionable to answer the question I've been assigned. Is the NIV a reliable version of the Bible? 